0: The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. David Carell is... Where is David? Stand up. David Carell is my ox. And David Carell is the one who really sets the direction of this church and uh, David Carell is the one that I confess my sin to you must have somebody that you confess your sin to and David Carell is a man of faith if you ever have problems call David don't call me because David will do better for you I mean you can call me and I'm happy to help but, David, last night, sent a message through my wife of two things that I need to say at the beginning of today. One of them is, um, you must kiss the men of your church and hug them and tell them you love them. Why? Well, not because I want you to be weird, but years ago I realized that uh, I was coming... I was, I, you, by the way, you also must stand in the door and greet your people after the service. There is nothing diagnostically as good as greeting your people after a service. You wouldn't believe what you can tell about people in the door of a church and the seconds it takes for them to get by. Okay? So if you don't do that, start doing it. <laughs> but in the door of the church one day, I was standing at the former church, and all of a sudden, this guy, I'd shake their hands, and this guy grabbed my hand... <laughs> and he went like this to me and we had homosexuals coming to church there. And so what I did was I went like this and I kissed him on the lips. And he kissed me on the lips. And then both of us kinda of went, mm-hmm. <laughs> He was a missionary's kid from the Middle East. And he had been going to kiss my cheek. And I thought, he's gay. And he wants to freak me out. I'll see him one and raise him one. (laughs) And he ended up the next year teaching Joseph uh, in junior high school. But I learned something from that. And what I learned is that when a man who's terminally straight uh, and is older kisses you and hugs you it it, it de-eroticizes male contact and it acclimates to him to what he should have had when he was growing up with his dad so a while later we had our first ordination service of church officers in this church which came out of that church and uh, it was something that happened spontaneously but when we got done and it was time to greet one another as officers and the congregation to greet you, I watched as the men of the church kissed each other on the cheek. And from that point on, we make a principle of our bodies, even though I'm I'm Presbyterian and Reformed. Reformed people believe that the point of life is to not have bodies. Okay? Only brains. And what we need to do is kneel. You know Calvin said that kneeling and lifting hands was required, was mandatory? You don't know that, do you? And Calvin has a section on Acts 20 where he talks about how we think that emotions are not a gift from God. He's talking about Paul kissing and hugging the men on the shore of Miletus. So I want to say that I think it's absolutely essential if you're going to have a ministry that takes sex seriously. To take sex seriously is to take bodies seriously. And this is why the Apostle Paul commands us, and it's done a number of times in Scripture, to greet one another with a holy kiss. And if you're a man, that means when you hug women, you don't touch their breasts. Now, there will be women who will touch your chest with their breasts, but then you need to move them to the side and give them a hug, or lean forward, or do something. But that's what it means, holy kiss, right? I'm I'm only talking about the meaning of the word holy and kiss. Okay, that's what makes a kiss holy. You don't touch women's breasts, right? Can we say this? Okay. All right. So that's the first thing David wanted to say is we make a point of trying to touch one another and especially lesbian women and homosexual men. Uh, if you watch me Sunday morning, you could learn things um, about people in the church by how I, how I touch them another thing make sure you touch the older women of your church if they're widows a lot of these widows never ever have any human contact and there's nothing sexual about it you need to hug them uh, I put my hand on their hair I tell them they're beautiful and they are beautiful and so as a, as a, as a shepherd you need to be touching your people I said, I, do I do okay? <laughs> and then there was another thing about being clinical, and I think I want you to come up and say that one. You were saying that we have to be clinical. <clears throat>
1: Uh, what I was uh, thinking about yesterday is Tim was talking about making a place at the table for discussion about sexuality. And I think when I came here and interviewed 15 years ago, Tim said, when you get to Bloomington, there'll be men walking down the street holding hands. And there was kind of a yuck factor for me, because where I came from, you didn't see that very often. Not that there weren't men that hold, held hands. But oddly enough, I never see men holding hands when I'm here. I think maybe once I've seen women holding hands. But then there's uh, the whole idea of kissing. He told me when I came, he said, we we de-eroticize sex by kissing the men. And I thought, well, you know, I don't (laughs) kiss men generally. And the only reason I say this is because the whole idea of making a place at the table is completely uh, crowded with all of these kinds of things that we're not used to. Discussions about things that we're not used to. uh, Talking with people clinically. So Tim always gives the illustration that when you go to the doctor, the doctor says, okay, uh, or the nurse says, okay, you go in this room, And she says, now take everything off and sit on that table. And you don't fuss and you don't make a big, it's never comfortable. But what you do is what she says to do, because the doctor, in order to do his work, has to be able to see what he's working with, right? And so as pastors, we have to deal with people that way. There's so much of a clinical nature to what we do. And if you are afraid or if you're worried about the yuck factor, then you better get over it. You better get over it fast. You don't want to go to a uh, yeah. a, um, a cancer doctor. What are they called? Oncologist. Yes. Yeah, so you don't want to go to an oncologist and and him be all nervous about his, your diagnosis and being all just. You want to go to an oncologist who's looking at you saying, "I'm not afraid of your future. I'm going to be with you, and I'm and I know what I'm doing." And so when you deal with making a place at the table for sexuality and for the discussion of sexuality, you got to be not afraid to deal with sexuality. And if you think about kissing a man on the cheek, that's just one placeholder. The discussions you have when you deal with people talking about sexuality, talking about sexual sin, you need to be – you dive right in. The doctor asks your medical history and he's very thorough and he's very, very particular. And if you're dealing with a man who's in bondage to pornography, you ask him questions that are very thorough and very particular. Otherwise, you don't know what you're dealing with. And it just means that you have to be unafraid what's the word? Clinical, but you have to just take on the job and do the job and know that that's your responsibility. So
0: we have an infamous sermon where one Sunday I was talking about this to the congregation and I um, I talked about how up in Wisconsin in my former church they were dairy farmers and that if you went into the dairy farm if you went into milk parlor there were certain cows that had mastitis if they freshen they had mastitis so you'd watch the farmer as he would grab the udder and feel if it was getting hard right and Everybody in the church died because I'm like going like this and talking. I, you, you, Adam's, okay, like this, whatever. <laughs> but here's the point the point is if you're a shepherd, and that includes older women with younger women, Titus too. it includes deacons, it includes elders, it includes you if you aspire to the office, because the only way you're going to get in the office is if you show you're a shepherd before you're a shepherd, all right? If you're a shepherd, you have to know your sheep. You have to know your sheep. And if you're more worried about how people look at you and what they think of you, than you are about caring for the sheep. You can never, ever be a faithful shepherd. Because when a couple comes in and you're going to counsel them, one of the principal diagnostic questions is how often do you have sex? Who takes the initiative? And they're going to blush. And let me tell you, when they blush, you say, just answer the question. And then if you apologize, well, I'm sorry, I know this is difficult, but, but I think it will help me if you t- It's so pathetic. It's not about you. Would you please exercise the authority of your calling without apologizing? Now, I'm going to tell you one more story, and then I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do this morning. One of the most helpful things I ever heard about the ministry was when my brother David was getting married. And there was an older gentleman who had been a pastor to his wife. And he was at the rehearsal because, I don't know, was he, was he going to marry you? Did he marry you? Why was he there? Huh? He helped, yeah. His name was Pastor Goldsmith. And at that time, I'd say he was probably 55, 60 maybe. Yeah. And I was talking to him, and I just recently entered the ministry, and I had, oh oh, boy, (laughs) fasten your safety belts. My church. Whoa. And... I mean, to give you an idea, one of my elders was a 16-year-old woman who was living with her boyfriend at Carroll College in Iowa. Okay, you got the idea? This is the PCUSA. All right. And <clears throat> so I was talking to him, and he had, I think, a ministry of rejuvenating churches, and he was viewed across the denomination that, that he was in, the United Brethren, as... as, as a leader. Uh, he was respected. And so I was sitting talking to him under the shelter. I can still see. And he told me that when he went into a new church and he changed churches a lot, the first thing he'd do is he would send out a postcard to the people in the church saying, I'm going to show up at your house. I'm going to take 45 minutes And here are the questions I'm going to ask you. How many times a day, how many times a week do you have personal devotions? How many times do you lead your family in devotions? How many times? And as I heard this older gentleman pastor telling me this, I was just like, dude, you can't be serious. And I remember saying to him, you do that? If I did that, I'd get fired. And it was quiet for a second, and then he looked at me and he said, Tim, if I've learned one thing in the ministry, I've learned that people do what you expect them to do. Okay? And I would rate that as one of the most helpful things I've ever been told about pastoral ministry. People do what you expect them to do. If it's about you, you'll be apologetic. And guess what? People will be offended when you ask them how many times a week or a month they have sex. Because you've, you've telegraphed to them, be offended at what I'm about to ask, because I don't have confidence asking, and it. it's really impertinent for me to ask, and, and okay? And they say, How dare you ask that? And the wife says, We came here to talk to you about our son, not about ourselves. <laughs> you say, Did you hear my question? How many times a week do you have sex? Week! You know? And someone will say, a day. He wants it three times a day. Have any of you had somebody say that to you? Have any of you asked the question? Oh, come on, guys. And what do you find out when it's three times a day? Adam is a physician. you imagine if Adam did what David said? You know, he says to the guy, okay, now I know this is embarrassing, but... I'm going to leave the room for a few seconds. Would you please uh, take off your your? Who wants a doctor like that, right? <coughs> <Gesundheit>. <coughs> there's an old New Yorker cartoon and you're looking from the head of the examining table and there's this big businessman, you know, you can see his clothes in the corner hanging, sitting there, and he's got the thingamabugger you put on, on him, you know, and you're looking from behind him, so (laughs) you see this much of his rear and the whole thing, and the doctor's standing facing him, and the doctor, this man is like, mm." and the doctor says, uh, he says, humiliation is the whole point of it. (laughs) (laughs) okay now let's have the overhead okay here's the book in the closet how shame stopped the church from loving homosexuals it may not be the title it's a working title the introduction, then some personal history, you heard some of that last night. Then the church yesterday, and you heard some of that last night. Then the church today, where I go through a Obergefell, I go through all the signs that the foundations are crumbling. Okay? Then, removing the sin of effeminacy from Scripture. Okay? And that's what we'll do. That's, you'll hear m- much of that chapter this morning. Um, then, n- nobody's perfect. And so when I was writing the book up in Michigan, I went to get some salad, and I tried to check my salad out at the mire, and it just kept sending the woman over from the counter. Ah, oh, it's just driving me bonkers, and I, you know, and she kept, and finally she calls her supervisor, her supervisor comes over and looks, We're, we keep trying to check out the salad, you know, and she says, oh, Dole salad has been recalled. I said, What? And she said, they have a recall. She said, you can't have any of this. She took it all out. You know, I buy these pre-packaged salads when I'm up there because I don't want to sit there and go boop, 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 right? And so she took it all out of my thing. Well, I want salad. So when I got done buying my stuff, I had to leave my cart here and go back into the salad department to get salad again because she just took all my salad. I go there. And m- within minutes, an entire wall of mire is empty. There's no salad, the kind I want, right? And I go home and I hear that one person has died of listeria. And it's dull. You cannot trust Tim Bailey, you can't trust Doug Wilson, you can't trust Al Moeller, and you can't trust J.I. Packer. That's this chapter. Because what we're about to do in the book is look at the unfaithfulness of us as pastors on the subject. And so I use the Dole thing as a way of saying, brand names aren't good enough. All right? What does it say about the Bereans? Okay? They were more noble. They went home and looked in their Bible to see whether what was said was true. Okay? So that's nobody's perfect. The gay Christian era in Wheaton College. I remember their lesbian chaplain who said she didn't believe in having sex, she was chaste, celibate. And then she came out. But she came out again. She was already out, but she came out again. She came out in a way that finally Phil Reichen got it. Okay? The president of Wheaton. Then the godliness is not heterosexuality error. That's Gospel Coalition. You remember they ran that headline. Then the reparative therapy error. You remember that uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and Al Mohler issued this statement that they're opposed to reparative therapy. And that will be a chapter. Then the sexual orientation era, and Al Mohler, where he said he had been—he he, he didn't believe in sexual orientation, but he repented. He used the word repent, and now he believes in sexual orientation. Okay, and that probably will be almost the strongest chapter because I realize I have to write that extremely carefully, because all you guys listen to his daily radio program, and you love him. Because he's the guy that shows you what's going on in culture. And so it's going to be a high hurdle to get you to believe that Al Moore is caving on homosexuality. And he is. So that chapter I have put more time into than any other chapter. Sorry. This is why I've been told the book isn't going to sell. Okay. The such are some of us error, that's desiring God when they ran that uh, blog post saying that churches should h- hire, hire gay men as pastors. You know, celibate gay men, but gay men. So I deal with that. Then livingout.org and the grace of shame, as I've been writing the book, it's become clear to me that from the very beginning, the gay pride movement has been an attempt to remove the shame that God has associated with sexual perversions of all sorts. And nobody has taught me this more than Mike Bowles, who's sitting here with his wife, Lisa. Because you have to listen to people who, who don't give you-know-what about political correctness and the way they talk to have the language of shame restored to you. Because all of us who are sophisticated have learned that we should never, ever participate in shaming. But shaming is a gift from God. So this chapter, it opens up the fact that shame is a gift from God. And I've received emails more than once from men tempted by homosexuality who write me and say, thank you for saying sodomy on the website, on the blog, because it helps me flee from my temptation. Okay, And so that opens that up. And the name of the organization over in England, in the UK, is livingout.org. And so what does out mean? You all know what out means. Out of the closet, right? So they're saying, we're going to be living out in the church, but celibate. And it's a scam. They mean well. All the people mean well. But remember what James says. James says, not many of you should desire to be teachers because you can be certain that we will be judged out with greater strictness, and then it has the most delightful statement in the New Testament for pastors. All of us often go wrong. Then leading gays and lesbians to repentance, and then the way forward, and then an appendix on the translation of malcoy because what I'm going to give you this morning... Oh, man. Everybody's going everybody's to hate me. Everybody's going to hate me, because... At the center of what I'm criticizing is the decision of the ESV to remove Malachi from 1 Corinthians 6-9. And it's just disgusting. The whole purpose of the ESV was to not cave on sexuality. And so on this and also... In, First Timothy, they remove uh, old wives' fables. And there's no other way of translating the Greek at that point than old wives' fables. (laughs) And they just remove it from Scripture because why? Well, we all know why. You know, who wants to say old wives' fables? You know, what does it have to do with women and old women? What do you do, you know, whoop up on widows? You know, you don't, you, you know, right? Okay, all right, now I'll start. Okay. And so pray for the book, you guys, because this is such a hard sell. Nobody's going to like the fact that we're criticizing the ESV. Okay? But you watch, and you tell me whether it is a mistake, and oversight, that they took this word out of Scripture. Okay? For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God... 1 Corinthians 11:7. 7. But the woman is the glory of man. What's the word but? It's a preposition, but it's also what? The word but is what we call an adversative. It brings conflict, tension between the, the two parts of the verse, right? Can you feel that? It's putting in opposition man and woman. It's... it's <laughs> You ready for this? It's thinking dichotomously. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. And we start this chapter, I should say I do, we do, whatever, we all work on these books. We start this chapter with this verse because it's, it's almost the most elemental foundational statement about sex in all of Scripture. Okay, because it's it's tracking with with the Trinity. And so right right at the beginning of this chapter, we want all of you to realize, okay, yikes, what does that mean? Okay, you're all feeling that tension. What does that mean? All right, so let's get into it. Let's pray, Father, as we study the nature of man and woman. We pray that we will not be resistant. And that we won't look at our failures, but rather at the success, at the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully man while being fully God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen evangelicals have no doctrine of sex we have biblical commands we are scrupulous to obey and Greek words we are scrupulous to defend the meaning of but we have no theology of sex actually though it's worse than that we we we're opposed to any theology of sex yes some of us still believe the husband should be the head of his wife some of us also want the father to be the head of the home and the guy preaching Sunday morning to be an actual guy Some of us also think our church's elders should be guys. Other than those few things, though, we believe in little more than body parts. Possibly women, or not possibly, probably women should still be the sex that gestates. And men should provide food for gestating women. Also, in most Christian homes, it's likely still good for the mother not to have to put her kids in daycare, especially while she's nursing. Beyond men having servant leader, tie-breaking authority in private Christian places, and Christians having certain scruples concerning the proper use of body parts, we have no theology of sex. This is the reason evangelicals have no problem with the gay Christian lobby. As long as these gay Christians living with one another in spiritual friendships promise not to have sex with each other. If they go off the reservation and say they're going to go ahead and have sex with each other, after all, we finally find our principles and tell them it's sin. But without the improper use of body parts, there is no sin. Identity is one thing, body parts are something else body parts are serious business they're visible they don't lie and they have to be obeyed obeyed physically that is not emotionally or mentally or spiritually after all what would it mean to obey body parts spiritually is there some way of listening to a sermon or having fellowship or praying that's heterosexual rather than homosexual Are women supposed to pray in a womanly or feminine way? Are men supposed to pray in some sort of manly or masculine way? This is the origin of false statements such as, quote, and these are real statements from Gospel Coalition, quote, there is no place in the Bible where heterosexuality is commanded, unquote. And, quote, the Bible never says that heterosexuality in general terms is a good thing, unquote. And quote, godliness is not heterosexuality, unquote. If sex is only body parts, no one needs to identify with the body parts which mark them man or woman. Heterosexuality is not necessary for a man or woman to live a life that is pleasing to God. And yet what if sex has meaning beyond body parts? Then the whole complementarian gay Christian godliness is not heterosexuality scheme. It blows up. When sex becomes personhood and meaning that are given us by God, which we are to confess before the watching world, all of a sudden, dichotomous thinking and feeling and living become a key part of the Christian sanctification. Then holiness in a man is different than holiness in a woman because part of holiness for man is manliness and part of holiness for woman is womanliness or femininity then it becomes clear that heterosexuality is, in fact, godliness. (laughs) I'm sorry about my laughter. I don't know what to do about it. Another way of getting at this is to say that the pastor or counselor working with a seeker who wants to stop hooking up with their gay or lesbian partners and to turn to Jesus should not apply the question of repentance to physical relations alone sex has meaning far deeper than how body parts are used in human intimacy. It would be conniving at the particularities of gay and lesbian sex to avoid bringing up the sexual identity God gave the seeker at the moment of his or her conception. We would have to go on to call him or her to turn away from their homosexuality and embrace heterosexuality. We would have to command him to turn away from his effeminacy and love and live his masculinity to turn away from her bold dikeness and love and live her femininity. And by the way, that phrase is used by the lesbians. I'm not making it up. I'm using their term. The seeker must repent of his effeminate sexual relations, but even more his fe- effeminate identity. He must repent of his homosexuality and embrace his heterosexuality. God made him a man. And the beginning of his new life in Christ must be to confess his manhood. But what if you have a theolo- no theology of sexuality? What if you hate being called a, quote, sexist, unquote, and don't want anyone to label your thinking, quote, binary, unquote, or, quote, dichotomous, unquote? What if you've published and sell a version of the Bible that removes effeminacy from the sin list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10? What if you believe manhood and womanhood have no meaning outside of copulation, baby-making, and baby-raising? What if you believe Adam being created first has no meaning for anyone other than Christians in the privacy of their homes and their churches? What if you've published and sell a version of the Bible that removes fit, for, fit only for old women from 1 Timothy 4.7? What if you've taken the word obey out of the wife's vow in the marriage liturgy you use with your congregants? You know, Prince Di vowed to obey her husband. Did you know that? She vowed to obey her husband, because that's what we've all been vowing for five centuries. But it's gone. It's completely gone. I have said again and again, all we need to do in the Reformed Church today is just make it confessional that your marriage vows have the woman vowing to obey. That's it. I don't care to argue about anything else. Put the word obey back in, and I'm content. I'll die at peace. <laughs> You listen, it's never there. It's absolutely never there. The most conservative men don't have it in the marriage vows for their, for their brides. Okay. What if you've preached sermons reassuring your congregants that 1 Corinthians 11.6 has nothing to do with Christian worship today and that 1 Corinthians 11.14.15 have nothing to say about the meaning of sex and the length of our hair? What if you believe Eve being deceived has no meaning for anyone other than Christians, and really no meaning for Christians either? <laughs> what if you believe original sin is inherited from Adam and Eve and not just Adam? Do you know the Westminster Standards lead you to believe that? It's an error in the Westminster Standards. Okay. What if you preach that Paul was wrong when he said man was the glory of God, but woman the glory of man? If some or all of these things are true of you, then sadly you have no idea how to lead this seeker to confess his manhood because manhood remains a mystery to you. This is why when someone announces, quote, there's no place in the Bible where heterosexuality is commanded, unquote, quote, the Bible never says that heterosexuality in general terms is a good thing, unquote, and, quote, godliness is not heterosexuality, unquote, it sounds perfectly fine to you. After all, you've never thought about heterosexuality as an identity. To you, it's merely the proper insertion of the proper body parts. But those of us who have spent decades working with gays and lesbians know that homosexual physical relations are only the tip of the iceberg in the work of sanctification God does in their lives. Sex is so much more than copulation. Sex is who we are. Sex is who God made us, and there's no part of life that escapes it. To pursue God's heterosexuality, his male and female, he created them, is to pursue holiness in matters as disparate as male clothing and female clothing, fatherhood and motherhood, male speech and female speech, and silence, male hair length and female hair length, male glory and female glory, and the list is endless. It goes on and on. Like most things I know, I learned this through my mistakes. Are you with me on this? I, I tell young men that are making all the mistakes, I say, you know, I, I wish, I've always wished that I was one of those th- people that learned through being taught. But unfortunately, I learn through my mistakes. The good thing is you never forget it. <laughs> you know? Okay? Years ago, a young man moved from the East Coast to Bloomington in order to attend this church. He had gotten caught in homosexual bondage and wanted our pastors and elders' help towards repentance. We have had many opera singers in our church through the years, and this man sang opera also, but he was no tenor or bass. He was what is known as a countertenor. In the olden days, young boys who showed promise as singers were castrated to keep their voices from changing. For instance, back in the early 20th century, a man named Alessandro Moreschi, was a member of the Sistine Chapel Choir and served as its director of soloists. Moreschi is known as, quote, the last castrato. Fathers aren't castrating their sons so they can sing in the Vatican's choir any longer or be soloists. But countertenors sound like a castrato. And I know because I have 17 tracks by Mareske on my computer. And I have them there because they remind me of what most preaching sounds like today. Would you go ahead and play? This is Alexander Mareski, the last castrato. Listen, guys, that sound is one of the saddest sounds you'll ever hear in your life. How could you not love that man? Honestly, how could you not love him? Do you understand? You think of the story of the Good Samaritan, and he finds him lying by the side of the road. That's what this sounds like. This poor man, and this has been his life. And he's, been, he's, he's gotten all the accolades of the Vatican. He's been the principal soloist. And this is the end of his life. And he will die singing like that. It's the most hideously horrendous sound you could ever hear in your life. Right? <laughs> And really, it's a perfect analogy of what lesbians and homosexuals are like. They have no idea how to live in the body God gave them. And if you'll just love them, if you'll just love them, if you'll think, what if I was that man singing like that? You know, that's what you do when you love your neighbor is you put yourself in their body and you feel what they feel. You think what they think. You, 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 you see the shame that they have, right? And so this man came into our church. This is how he sang. Now, of course, <laughs> he was much better than that. Uh, and, you know, he would tell you it's not falsetto, it's trained, you know. What the distinction between falsetto and being trained? I don't know what it is. So he comes into our church and uh, told us he was done with homosexual relations and I thought that was all that was needed, you know? I mean, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm busy, I have a family, you know? All he needs to do is stop having sex, right? Right? Yes, he dressed it like little Lord Fauntleroy, which is to say effeminately. Yes, he was effeminate in his gestures, and he fluttered his eyes like a woman. Yes, he hung with all the gays when he was out gigging. He'd, he'd talk about going up and gigging at the Episcopal Church up in Indy, and he'd sit in the in the hot tub with the you know the gay the gay people, you know, the gay men. Yes, he hung with all the gays when he was out gigging, but that was his job, wasn't it? This is how I thought. You couldn't very well tell him to quit his job, and really, what's wrong with a man singing falsetto? Tiny Tim tiptoed through the tulips, and the whole world laughed. So what's the big deal? We understood the whole godliness is not heterosexuality thing quite well. We, me, okay? I understood. Godliness is not heterosexuality. Godliness is just stopping him copulating with other men. Are you with me? That was the gold standard to me of pastoral ministry to this man. So he offered to sing a female aria from the Messiah one Sunday during Advent, and I was happy for him to be making his contribution to the body of Christ. When he got up and sang that Sunday, people were fishing in their purses and wallets for their offerings, so at first they didn't notice that the woman's voice belonged to a man. The children noticed, though, and quickly brought their fathers and mothers up to speed. We watched as every child in the church elbowed his mother and whispered, Mom, it sounds like a woman, but it's a man. One older elder did a double take, then reached in his pocket for his glasses and Put them on and went like this. We Mary Lee saw his head go forward like this, like getting closer will help to clarify what's going on here, you know. (laughs) At the pastor's meeting that week, one of our pastors said that we had been wrong to let him sing. Quote, he's a man and he shouldn't be leading us in worship by singing like a woman. I didn't listen. And later in the week, as the buzz went through the church, I had several opportunities to show how enlightened I was. That's not what it says here. I had several opportunities to explain to my own family and others in the church that this young man was a trained countertenor. And this was how he sang, that he'd given performances around the world. You know, Nixon in China, that composer brought him to Australia. You know, he loved using him. Okay? that he'd given performances around the world and we should not treat him like a pariah just because his voice wasn't stereotypically male. You all know the stuff I said because you would have agreed with me. Sadly, though, as the years went by, this man went back into sinful sexual relations. Our elders and pastors worked with him for years, sometimes at great personal and financial expense. When he was working as an understudy, the guy that'll step in if, the, if the, the role holder gets sick, all right, at the City Opera in New York City. Mike, who has taught me the importance of shame, got on a plane, flew out, and stayed in how big of an apartment? Tiny, tiny apartment in Manhattan, trying to get this man to come home. But he wouldn't come. Mike flew across the country. The elders and deacons paid for it. He wouldn't come home. He refused, and after several days appealing to him to flee his sin, our emissary gave up and came home. We had a, com- a subcommittee of the elders who met with this man many times during his confessions of sin and prayed for him. Finally, after countless tearful confessions and elders' admonitions and exhortations and prayers... With great sadness, our session held a trial and excommunicated the man. It was very pathetic. He was one of the very few we've excommunicated through the years who fulfilled his vow to submit to the elders by attending his trial and listening to his verdict firsthand. But there was no repentance then, nor has there been any repentance since. After announcing his excommunication to the church, I came to see my own failure, which contributed to his sin. I had not called him to be a man. I had not called him to sing like a man. I had not called him to dress and walk and relate to his women friends as a man. I had not taught him to be a man. I had utterly failed him. Since then, it's been very clear to me that it is my calling and duty to teach men to be masculine and women to be feminine. I am called by God to teach the souls under my care that from the beginning, God made them heterosexual, not homosexual. From the very beginning, God made them male or female. God did not give them any gender identity. He made their body parts, male or female. And to quote an old feminist line from the 70s, our bodies, ourselves. To put it bluntly, the Christian theology of sexuality begins with the statement, godliness is heterosexuality. If you, dear brother or sister, are struggling with same-sex desires, don't make the terrible mistake of thinking you can limit your repentance to the physical realm. Don't think celibacy is enough. It's not. When you smile and laugh and make love and talk and walk and dress and get a haircut and garden and teach and drive and worship and study and draw and work and read the Bible and sing and pray, it all must be done to the glory of God, keeping in mind always that Adam was created first, then Eve, that it was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve, and that man is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So now I speak. To men and women about their hair length, calling them to grow in godliness by confessing their sex through the length of their hair. And I know you're going to want to say to me, are you serious, you know, you talk to a man about masturbating, are you serious, you actually talk to men like that? And it's like, you know, somebody asked me this last night, you remember I was talking about how pathetic, you know, you, you whack in front of a naked woman on your... That's awful, right? And so somebody last night said, do you actually say that to people as a pastor? And I said, yes. And there was a man standing right next to him, and the man said, yeah, he said it to me. (laughs) But listen, you're here, and you see me. And none of those men think of it as a bully. None of those men think I'm making much of myself and little of them. They don't resent me for it because I love them. If you love your sheep, you can rebuke them. If you love your sheep, your rod and your staff will comfort them. You know, Jesus didn't quite get it when he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. Jesus should have been able to anticipate how scandalous that would be to people. (laughs) And then it says, and many... Left. That's clearly the time in his ministry when the vast majority of his disciples left him. Okay? Stupid Jesus. He could have thought that through. Right? What on earth was he thinking? Right? Stupid Jesus. And you remember, you don't think that Jesus didn't feel it because you remember what he said right after that happened? Do you remember? It is probably the most plaintive statement that ever, one of the two or three that ever came out of Jesus' mouth. Do you remember what he said after they all left him? He said, are you going to leave me too? So listen, you cannot be helpful in the area of sexuality until you resign yourself to a declining church, a declining salary, and lower approval ratings but it won't be because you're a pompous, bombastic ass like Donald Trump. Sorry. That's not in the book. (laughs) In your case, your declining approval ratings will be because you love your sheep and you fear God and you want to be helpful, right? Now, this this is something I do all the time, but everything you're hearing this weekend is aimed at getting you to be what? Come on, say it. That's right. Did you hear it? Say it again. This is, this is a trope in our church. Where when we're saying things that we know everybody's going to resent, I look at the people and I say, look, here's an idea. Let's have a shepherd. Let's have a pastor. Let's have a preacher who's, and I do this, I go, Helpful! Okay? That's how I do it. Helpful. Helpful. And why do I do this? Why do I go, helpful? Well, (laughs) because it's disgusting. You know, everybody's repulsed when I do that. You know, to see a 63-year-old man go, helpful. But what it communicates to everybody is, forget me. All I'm here to be is helpful. That's it. So listen, this stuff is hard. I know it's hard. Yes, we do say these things to people. They know we love them. Yes, sometimes we say them in an insensitive way. The point is not for us to be uh, bombastic, loud, pushy bullies. Okay? The point is to help people. That's what we're called to do. All right. Now, let's talk about effeminacy, because there are two ways to approach a theology of sexuality, and one is to start in the garden and build a framework from the creation order, and that's fairly straightforward. God made man male and female. To start, this means men and women are different and complementary, but different how? Complementary how? Jesus applies this to marriage. Does it also apply outside marriage? Suddenly, our cultural blind spots and pressures begin to make things very difficult for us. I think in some ways, it's more helpful to look at the specific places where we've torn down biblical sexuality. As we try to patch the whole, the whole structure of biblical sexuality becomes more clear. And that's from Jake. He wrote that. The Bible is clear about the sin of effeminacy, but we've removed it from the pages of Scripture. This effectively blurs the line between male and female. Jake wrote this, too. And that allows men to be womanly and women to be manly. So in order to understand how to confess our sexuality as men and women, we need to spend time examining what the Bible actually says about effeminacy. Okay, next text. Do not be deceived... Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. About this time last year, the world was mourning the recent death of... David Bowie. Okay? If you don't know his name, every rock star today does, and this past year... Every one of the rock stars told the world that Bowie was their greatest inspiration. What was Bowie known for? Well, after Bowie's death, Salon ran a piece titled, Was David Bowie Gay? Bowie himself said he was gay, then said he was straight, then said he was bisexual, each according to his whim at the time. And that's the posture of our world toward male and female, whatever, okay? The writer of the piece is, uh, is gay, the writer of this piece on David Bowie. The writer of the piece is gay. As you read, you feel him suppressing his anger at Bowie for not simply coming out as a gay man. Near the end, the writer gives this brilliant summary of the state of gayness today. So I did not put that on the overhead. Okay, Here's the Quote, quote I believe that cultural gayness is something that can and does exist apart from homosexuality. Gays may have developed the set of cultural practices that define gayness, or what some would call the, quote, gay sensibility, unquote, or gay aesthetics, quote, unquote, but they need not be its only practitioners. Indeed, straight people, or whatever Bowie might have been, are theoretically just as capable of doing cultural gayness as gays are, and indeed some may do it better. Unquote. Gay sensibilities, gay aesthetics, gay speech, dress, and mannerisms, all this gayness exists independently of homosexual intercourse. As the author says, a gay or effeminate identity may or may not produce the fruit of gay homosexual relations. And as the Apostle Paul says, gay or effeminate sensibilities and aesthetics are themselves sin. Whether or not David Bowie committed sodomy, his effeminacy itself defaced. The manhood God wrote in him at the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. God made David Bowie a man, and it was his duty to live in submission to that manhood. God called him to live manly, but Bowie rebelled and spent his life living gay, effeminate, and wanting others to join him in his misery. He spent the rest of his life using his appearance in music to turn manhood and womanhood into camp jokes. David Bowie was above it all. He didn't need to be gay to be gay. He didn't need to bed men to be effeminate. The Apostle Paul lived in a time as sexually decadent as our own, and he knew David Bowie quite well. Writing to the believers living in the licentious city of Corinth, Paul warned them that our arsenikoite is the Greek word. Literally, men who lie with males will not inherit the kingdom of God. But immediately before that warning, Paul warned that malakoi, the Greek word, literally soft men, will not inherit the kingdom of God. David Bowie was the perfect specimen of the Apostle Paul's malakoi. Do not be deceived. This is from the ESV. Okay, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor Effeminate, actually, this is the NASB. Malachoi, literally soft men, nor homosexuals, arsenicoite, literally men who lie, nor thieves, nor Dakotas, nor drunkards. Those the Apostle Paul refers to as the Malakoi first and the Arsenicoite second are two distinct categories of sinners. Number one, the Malakoi, men like Bowie who are effeminate, and number two, the Arsenicoite, men like Elton John, who lie with men. His wife came in one day and found Bowie in bed with Mick Jagger. Okay? This is homosexuality historically, where men are so utterly degraded that they go from their wife to a man to their wife, anything they want to do. And none of you have any trouble thinking of Mick Jagger and David Bowie in bed together, right? And yet, what's David Bowie? His lips. I've never known anything about him other than his lips. (laughs) Right? In other words, jaded, debauched, disgusting, decadent. And this was the homosexuality of the time of the Apostle Paul. This was absolutely the ancient world, Greece and Rome, although they differed in, in their expression some so, the Apostle Paul refers to the Malachoi or Ersenechoite, the Malachoi are men like Boy, the Ersenechoite are men like Elton John. Now, does this make sense to all of you? Okay. Scripture condemns men who are characterized by an unmanly softness who betray their manhood by what? Playing the woman. Okay. Immediately, we hear the sputtering and ridicule. Are you serious? Soft men. You have to be kidding me. God judges men by how soft or hard they are. So Christian men have to be macho. The guy with bench press is 300 gets into heaven, but the guy who, who can't do push-ups is out of luck. Our sexually debauched world mocked. Still, the word of God stands firm, and those of us who love his word are careful to heed Scripture's warning that Malachi will not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> Men who are effeminate will not be in heaven. This is a stunning gospel truth that is perfectly suited to call the soft men of our androgynous age to repentance and faith. Those who are being saved eat this warning and find it sweeter than honey. Why? Because I am the Malakoi. I am the Malakoi man. I am the soft man. And I, I hear this and how beautiful it is to read God telling me, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see this? This is basic Christian gospel preaching. It is hopeless for you. And you can't make it hopeful by taking the word malakoi out of the text of 1 Corinthians 6.9. Remember the old statement, I met the enemy and he is me. He is us, but I wanted to make it personal so you could say it me. You know? All right. Yet there are Christians who can't bear the shame of this warning and find it bitter to their taste. Such men often hide behind requests for clarification. What does it mean to be effeminate? Some men are more sensitive by nature. It's how God made them. They like poetry. They'd rather go to an opera than hunt or play a pickup game of hoops. Is it some kind of sin for a guy to read poetry and wear pink shirts? I almost put a lavender one on today. I'm colorblind, so I don't. I think this one's blue, but I have one just like it that's lavender, so I should have worn it on Maybe readers are irritated at the equating of poetry, opera, and pink with effeminacy. But these words are not mine. These are the words of Christians who deny that effeminacy is sin and mock any attempt to define it. Okay? I'm just channeling them. Another strategy for dealing with this warning is simply to remove it from our Bibles. Like preachers, Bible translators scratch our ears where they itch. Here's the text of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, taken from a Bible version that's widely used by conservative Christians. So what I'm doing in the book is not naming it, because I know people are going to have a fit if I name it, but it's a footnote there. So if you want to, you can go to the bottom of the page or to the back of the chapter, the back of the book, and find out it's the English Standard Version. (coughs) Okay, look at what they do. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral nor adult, nor men who practice homosexuality. And then this footnote. The two Greek terms translated men who practice homosexuality refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. It's a lie. I've told Vern Poythroth it's a lie. This is not the meaning of those words. Men who practice homosexuality is a satisfactory translation of the second word, arsenicoite, But where is the Greek word malakoi? Explaining why they left malakoi out of their Bible, the translators of this Bible version provide a footnote in which they claim malakoi only refers to the man who is penetrated during homosexual intercourse. This footnote leaves Bible readers with the false impression that the sin the Apostle Paul is warning against is simply homosexual intercourse. Body parts, okay? Just body parts. What do Pharisees always do? Pharisees always try to keep the outside of the cup clean. Body parts. Past generations of English Bible readers were not misled by their scholars they always translated the Greek word malakoi into English. Until the last few decades, no one had any trouble understanding that effeminacy was a sin distinct from homosexual intercourse and that both sins would exclude them from the kingdom of God. Okay. Wycliffe Bible, date, 1395. Neither lectures against kind okay, lectures. you know what a lecture is remember Aqualung? sitting on the park bench eyeing little girls with bad intent snot is running down his nose greasy fingers smearing shabby clothes oh Aqualung, you remember that song by Jethro Tull? huh, what? yeah, he played the flute yeah, yeah, I saw him at the stadium yeah yeah. One of the most evil songs. And man, when you're in the ministry, let me tell you something. You deal with people who have been abused as children. Letchers. Fifteen thirty six the Tyndale Bible, neither are weaklings. Ha <laughs> ha Luther's Bible, 1545, Jürgen von Hagen, the Reverend Dr. Honor, Bon, Mr. Big Hair, Jürgen von Hagen, would you please pronounce that verse for us? Okay, let's give him a mic. Weichlinge.
1: Noch die Weichlinge, noch die Knabenschänder.
0: Now, give us a translation.
1: <laughs> Neither the soft men
0: nor those who abuse boys. Yep, abuse boys. Welcome, Jürgen von Hagen. Geneva Bible, and you might wonder why we'd put that in the book, but because any idiot reading it knows what it says. I mean, you don't know that it's soft instead of weak, but... You get the idea. Geneva Bible, 1599, nor wantons. What is a wanton? Do you know what it is for a woman to, give, to have a wanton look about her? It's a woman who, who telegraphs to people she's available. Okay? And so it says, not wantons. Then King James, nor effeminate. Then Dewey Rhymes, nor the effeminate. Then J.B. Phillips, for heaven's sakes. Neither the effeminate nor the pervert. J.B. Phillips. The New Jerusalem, the self-indulgent, priceless translation. New American Standard, nor effeminate. Come on, guys. And everybody says that the ESV is finally a Bible we can trust. No, you can't trust them. You can never trust anybody, ever. Okay? Okay? Every Bible listed above was faithful to bring into the receptor language the distinction the Apostle Paul made between men who are effeminate and men who bet other men. Six centuries of Roman Catholic and Protestant Bibles were faithful to translate both Malachi and Asenicoite. Today, though, we live in a culture drowning in effeminacy. And so the removal of Malakoy suits us just fine. Removing the word saves us from having to define the sin of softness or effeminacy and having our definition met by hoots and catcalls. Right? You all get this. Yet while scholars ban the sin from inclusion in modern Bibles, did you hear me? Scholars ban the sin from being included in Bibles. Scholars who hold to the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. And the very definition of that is that it is the words that are inspired and not the concepts. Okay. Yet while scholars ban the sin from inclusion in modern Bibles and from conversations in polite society, the sin is alive and well (laughs) in yourself and frequently spoken of in impolite society. I always say that the pastor's the one we pay to lie, and the comedian we pay to tell the truth. And if a comedian ever stops telling the truth, he'll never get another job. And if the pastor ever starts telling the truth, he'll never get another job. Okay? And so in impolite society, in jokes and comedy clubs... We all know what effeminate means, right? Take, for instance, comedy clubs and locker rooms. Their men can talk about effeminacy all they want, although they don't use the word soft or effeminate. They say gay. The guy that gets out of fights by crying is gay. The guy that wears lavender or drives a Prius is gay. The guy that plucks his eyebrows is gay. Soccer players who dive, which is to say Italians, are gay. That's what Italians are known for, is diving. You know what diving is? Diving is when you act like you got fouled and you didn't. And so it's just the most disgusting thing. Argentinians always dive. Right, Claudia? Claudia's Argentine. Don't you guys always dive, or you're just proud and you don't have to dive? <laughs> okay, the beautiful game invented by Argentina, right? When a comedian or jock says a guy's gay, no one is so stupid as to think that the guy hooks up with men instead of women. He just means the guy's soft and effeminate. He calls him gay because of the way he dresses, talks, and acts isn't manly. In the time of the Apostle Paul, the Greek word malakos was used in the same way. Everyone understood the word didn't merely designate the passive participant in sodomitic relations. Okay? Okay? It meant the guy was soft and effeminate. Today they'd say gay. Historians describing the almost exclusively pederastic, which means men and boy, practice of sodomy in ancient Greece have for some time now been matter-of-fact about the distinction between men who are womanish and men who engage in sodomy. For instance, here is gay activist and classicist David Halperin, author of the constructivist classic, 100 Years of Homosexuality. Uh, I have the book here. I'll pass it around. It's just an absolute classic in queer literature. Okay? And uh, I'm going to read a quote from it. Okay. No, no, no. I don't have it here. I'm sorry. Okay. Here's what he says. Quote, Being a womanish man, being a womanish man, is not the same thing as being a homosexual. And the sexual activities that typically identify someone as belonging to the first category, a womanish man, are quite different from the sexual activities that identify someone as belonging to the second. Okay? So again, how is it that homosexualists are matter of fact in their discussions of the distinction between womanish men and sodomites while today's New Testament scholars delete this distinction from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians? Did you notice I didn't laugh this time? You should thank me. But this is where I would like to laugh. It just boggles your brain. Do you know what uh, Muggeridge or Chesterton, I think it's Muggeridge, says about humor? He says, in heaven there will never be any humor, because humor is how we compensate for the difference between what is, is and what we know was supposed to be. So he says, in heaven there will be no clothes and there will be no humor. Okay? Fifteen centuries after the Apostle Paul said the malakoi would not inherit the kingdom of God, the meaning of Malachi was still so clear that John Calvin made this comment on the Apostle Paul's warning. This is Calvin. He says, By effeminate malakoi, I understand those who, while they may not openly become prostitutes, nevertheless show how unchaste they are by the use of pandering words, by effeminate bearing and dress and other means of attracting attention okay? Pandering, by the way, if you don't know the word, it's pandering is everything that ever, ever is written on Facebook. Malakoi appears four times in the Greek New Testament. I actually read this part of the book to Vern Poitras. because I was checking my dutifuls with Vern, you know. Am I an idiot? You guys translated this Bible. Am I an idiot? I think you're wrong. What do you think? All right. Malachi appears four times in the Greek New Testament. Once here in, uh, actually it's not Malachi every time, it's adjective, but it's the root word. Once here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and three other times. Do any of you have any idea where else, those of you that have heard the book, chapter, don't say. Any of you have any idea where else in the New Testament it appears? Anybody? Well, yeah, Andrew. Andrew cherry-picked, right? John the Baptist. John rebuked Rome's governor Herod for having his brother's wife, and Herod rewarded John's godliness by throwing him into prison and later cutting off his head. While John was still alive in prison, he sent a few of his disciples to ask Jesus some questions. After Jesus answered them, Jesus turned to the crowd that was listening to the exchange and said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in? Same route. Soft clothing? Those who, same route, wear soft clothing are in the president's office of Southern Southern. They're presidents of Wheaton College. They speak at the Gospel Coalition conferences. Listen, that's that's our king's palaces. Okay? But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, and you wish you had been there to hear Jesus say this. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It enters violently, and violent men take it by force. What I did was I was reading this to Vern, and I got to the point where it says, and one who is more than a prophet, and I said, Vern, and Vern has... Much of the Bible memorized, I think, a great portion of it in the original Greek. And I said, Vern, what comes next? And it was fascinating. Vern didn't know. Did any of you know what came next? One of the most unpreached texts in all of Scripture. Kingdom of heaven suffers violence, enters violently, and violent men take it by force. Looking at the Greek words that Jesus used, he said John the Baptist was not, quote, a man dressed in Malachos garments, and that those who bear themselves soft, bear themselves soft, Malachos, are in king's palaces. The Puritan pastor Matthew Henry summarized Jesus' statement about John, quote, Was he a man clothed in soft raiment? If so, you wouldn't have gone into the wilderness to see him, but to the court. You went to see one that had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins. His mean, M-I-E-N, his comportment, the way he carried himself, his carriage, his mien and habit showed that he was dead to all the pomps of the world and the pleasures of sense. His clothing agreed with the wilderness he lived in and the doctrine he preached there, that of repentance. See, now you know why we translated this without the word effeminate. The reason is I and you and our scholars and our seminary presidents are all malakoi. You can't say no to your lusts you cannot choose to be faithful in the midst of battle. You fear your reputation among men more than God. You are Malachi. That's what you are. You. Not, not me. I am. But you. You are Malachi, And so you have a Bible that scratches you where you itch. Now, we have a friend who studied biblical exegesis at Wheaton, so he knows how to exegete the Bible. And when he heard this argument, his response was, he named somebody and he said, well, he's Malachi. He didn't say I am. He said, so-and-so is Malachi. Are you saying he won't go to heaven? And, of course, what's the point of the Bible? Well, it's to make it very clear to us that everybody who's a part of our family is going to heaven. I mean, if the Bible can't do that, what on earth can it do? And so covenant succession, federal vision, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Because that's the whole point of the Bible. You know, it's to, I mean, unless you have the Catholic Church and the sacraments, you've got to have the Bible tell you your children are going to heaven, right? That's the point of the Bible, right? You know, Jacob and Esau, I both loved. <laughs> right? Listen, if you look at the list of sins that keep us from heaven, we... we You and I are guilty of a number of those sins. How about greed? Is there an American today who isn't greedy? So what are we going to do with this sin statement? Why don't we take them all out? As a matter of fact, why don't we just take the word repent out? Jesus ended his defense of John with the statement that most of us find jolting from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence or enters violently is a better translation. And violent men take it by force. Violent men taking the kingdom of heaven by force. You see what Jesus was saying. John the Baptist wasn't one of the Malakoi because the Malakoi aren't out in the wilderness. Prophets don't dress themselves soft. They don't have an effeminate bearing. They don't dress and talk and carry themselves like a woman. Which is to say... Your kid asks you a stupid question, right? And if you're a good dad, you'll look at your kid and you'll say, Duh! Now, if there's ever a duh statement, it's that one. And yet, it had never occurred to me until I was working on this chapter. Here's a definition of a prophet. He isn't gay. (laughs) You know? I mean, honestly, it's precious, you know? I discovered it. John the Baptist was a man's man, and men who want to enter the kingdom of God will copy him. Like John the Baptist, violent men will take the kingdom of heaven by force. Again, Puritan pastor Matthew Henry, this violence denotes a strength and vigor and earnestness of desire and endeavor. They who would enter into the kingdom of heaven must strive to enter. That kingdom suffers a holy violence. Self must be denied. The bent and bias, the frame and temper of the mind must be altered. There are hard surfaces, services to be done, hard sufferings to be undergone, force to be put upon the corrupt nature. We must run and wrestle and fight and be in an agony. The violent take it by force. I was reading Augustine recently. You know what he says child rearing is? Agony. Would that we were done with all our romantic notions of childhood. And we just realize it's agony for them, it's agony for us. And if we and they suffer enough agony as they grow up, they will be Godwin. The violence Jesus makes reference to is not violence against other men, let alone women and children. It's violence against our own sinful lusts. It's violence in opposing our desire to be soft and vacillating in our pursuit of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not commending machismo. He is commending the manly pursuit of eternal life. The final use of malachos in Scripture is in Luke's account of Jesus' defense of John the Baptist. What did you go out to see? Luke 7.25. A man dressed in soft clothing? There it is. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. Jesus' words about... So what I'm saying about the President's Office of Southern and Gospel Coalition Conferences, remember, I've said that about me, about you, about us. The reason all of us have removed the word is because all of us are soft. And we don't want to be told that it's a sin that will keep us from heaven. Jesus' words. What about our Lord Jesus? Was Jesus soft or effeminate? All the pictures of Jesus in our Bible story books make him look gay. Locks of beautiful sort of blondish hair, a pretty smile. He's wearing a long flowing gown that's pressed and clean. His hand is extended in a a sort of come to me gesture. He's not fat or short, nor even muscular. He's perfectly proportioned and handsome, stunningly so. Please don't resent me for saying this, but it's all a lie. Quite naturally, the pictures of Jesus in our Bible story books portray the Jesus we worship. But this Jesus is an idol. We have turned Jesus into the soft, effeminate man we are ourselves. And so there in the Bible storybooks we read to our children is an image of the kind of man who adorns the cover of every cheap romance novel. The kind of man adored by (laughs) a certain kind of woman. Is this the picture of Jesus we read in the four Gospels? Would this Jesus... Pictured in the Bible story, books have responded this way to a compliment paid to his mother. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts on which you nursed. But he, Jesus, said on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. (laughs) Oh, man. Yikes. Yikes. Would he have responded this way when his mother and brothers were asking him to come out to talk to them? Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Would the Jesus of our Bible storybook say this? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But beyond the firmness of his character and demands, what does the Bible say about Jesus' physical appearance? Only one statement, and it's not in the Gospels. Where is it? Isaiah 53. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their fates. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus was not a mama's boy, nor was he a lady's man. Jesus was a prophet and prophets aren't gay. Jesus was a man of firm principles. He wasn't one of the malachoi. He wasn't soft but hard. And it was his great love that made him hard. Love for his father, love for sinners, and love for us. Luke tells us Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had a manly resolve to go there and die. He was firmly committed to doing the will of his father. Jesus' hardness was particularly evident in his zeal for his father's house. It was this zeal that led Jesus to go to the temple and whip the merchants, turning their tables upside down. Quote, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? For all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. David Bowie was one of the Malachi, the soft men. John the Baptist and Jesus were hard men, but not hard in the sense that they lacked the milk of human compassion and were impossible to please. They were hard men in the sense of being self-denying, principled, and firm in their commitment to compassion, justice, mercy, truth, and the glory of God. They were hard in their pursuit of the kingdom of God. They sought it with a holy violence. John the Baptist and Jesus had no gender identity. They had their manhood And they never took it off. Or it would be better to say they never stopped putting it on. The Bible doesn't talk about gender or sex. It doesn't speak of homosexuality and heterosexuality. It doesn't tell us sexual orientation is a real deal. The Bible talks about male and female. Man and woman, and it warns us, soft men will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next. Soft is not what God made man to be. Look at man's sexual organ and consider the simple truth that godliness for man is his living in obedience to his body. His body is hard in taking initiative and bearing responsibility. This is the reason soft men will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're in rebellion against who God made them. By necessary implication, all right, you're reformed, synecdoche. You know what synecdoche means? Look it up. By necessary implication... I'm not adding to the text of Scripture when I say this. It's a necessary implication of what is said against soft men. By necessary, the opposite is true of woman. Hard women will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hard is not what God made woman to be. Look at woman's sexual organ and consider the simple truth that godliness for woman is her living in obedience to her body. Her body is soft in receiving man's initiative and bearing the fruit of his initiative through her gift of life. And this is the reason hard women will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are in rebellion against who God made them. God created sexuality black and white. God created man and woman perfectly bifurcated. God created man and woman profoundly dichotomous. And the man or woman who seeks to blur this dichotomy will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus emphasized the fundamental dichotomy of the sexes when he stated that from the beginning God made them male and female, Mark 10:6). Thus we are to obey our sexual identity, yes, in our sexual coupling, but no less so in the way we live our lives. It's evil for men to have sex with men and women with women, but sex is much more than intercourse. Sex is all of life. No matter where we go, we never stop being boy or girl, man or woman, and thus we never escape God's command for us to confess the manhood or womanhood he decreed for us at the moment of our conception. So now, does it matter whether a man is unmanly, whether he plays the woman, whether he's soft and effeminate? Does it matter whether a woman is manly, whether she plays the man, whether she's hard and butch? Brash is the word they used to use. If so, we'd better do the hard work necessary to grow in our understanding of what it means for a man to be soft in a woman heart. Returning again to the discussion of men, we don't want God to bar us from his kingdom because we didn't understand effeminacy as sin and thus failed to live out the manhood he decreed for us while he was knitting us together in our mother's womb. Sure, it's easy to say these body parts do or don't go with those body parts. It's easy to condemn homosexual intercourse because the body parts don't fit together. But God designed sex to be much more than body parts. He made us to dress and speak and even to pursue the kingdom of God in a manly way. Jesus' reference to men who dress effeminately should be read in the context of Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And I'm going to skip over a Calvin quote here. So notice the order of the Apostle Paul's warnings. First he warns against effeminacy, and then he warns against men lying with men. Men wearing the clothing of women and being effeminate naturally leads to the next sin listed by the Apostle Paul which is men lying with men, which is to say the full-blown cult of homosexuality eviscerating the beautiful diversity of sexuality from our culture today is the natural fruit of the cult of effeminacy we've been drowning in for decades. Wicked men play the women, and this rebellion produces the fruit of men lying with men. Who led us into effeminacy? Now, I'm going I'm to trip off on, on music for a couple pages. I'll be done. But I think this will be interesting, okay? There were many influences, but speaking personally, I don't think we can overemphasize the influence of music and musicians. There's a great deal of truth to the statement that a church's music tells you more about its doctrine than the preaching. So what does our music tell us about the character of our culture? My first rock concert was Steppenwolf. A couple of us from the church youth group wanted to take in a concert, so we went into Chicago and took in a Steppenwolf concert. If you haven't heard of them, uh, go to YouTube and listen to Born to be Wild or Magic Carpet Ride. At some point during the concert, I needed to use the bathroom and found one deep in the bowels of the amphitheater. It was gross. Guys were passed out on the floor with their heads in the urinal. (coughs) It should have been a clue to me, but I wasn't ready to see it. The musicians strutted their stuff. Why don't you tell your dreams to me? Fantasy will set you free. Close your eyes, girl. Look inside, girl. Let the sound take you away. It was my first rock concert, and many others followed. Jethro Tull, New Writers of the Purple Sage, Chambers Brothers, Cheap Tricks, Sly and the Family Stone, Alice Cooper, Dylan, many times, Grateful Dead, Genesis, Pink Floyd, Albert Collins, Springsteen. What all the concerts had in common was idolatry. Rock stars were gods and we worshipped them. And most of the musicians packaged themselves in androgyny. I'm not just talking about glam rock. They cultivated effeminacy. They wore tight jeans and made gestures in the direction of their private parts. Right? They wore makeup and jewelry, scarves. Their shirts were unbuttoned to the navel or waist. They gyrated. They pranced in their hair. Am I channeling the Apostle Paul here? Their hair was colored, permed, and shamefully long. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame to him? 1 Corinthians 11:14. Rock stars were men who copped a feminine posture, and all of us found it cool and sexy. It was testosterone in drag. It was narcissism and vanity. It was princes made up like princesses, but with muscles. Still today, 50 years later, androgyny is one of the favorite shticks of people in the music business. They preen and wear lipstick. They're pretty like a woman, but strong like a man. And right there between pretty and strong is their sex appeal. Only now, women like Danica Patrick and Ronda Rousey are getting in on the act. Rock concerts gave us stars halfway between men and women, and we loved it. I can't find a quote, but I remember reading an interview with Mick Jagger where he said, quote, rock and roll is sex, unquote. He's right. Rock and roll is also rebellion. Put sex and rebellion together, and you have Mick Jagger's androgyny. Rebellion? What's wrong with a rock star parading his navel, wearing jewelry, singing falsetto, using lipstick, and tossing his long locks? It's wrong because it's effeminate. It's not manly. God created Mick Jagger, a man, and he should act like one. <laughs> the world has been waiting for decades to hear somebody say that. <laughs> to act like one is to obey God. What about Christian musicians? Are we any different? You tell me, are the male members of the band that lead you in worship each Lord's day manly or effeminate? Are they hard or soft? Do they confess the sex God made them, or are they androgynous? Do they lead with boldness and zeal, or in weakness and a sort of cloying passivity? And what about the Christian musicians you like to listen to? Do they lead you to pursue the kingdom of God with holy violence? <laughs> oh, man. Listen, we have to become self critical and see what we're doing with our music. Remember what I said? All the Reformed churches, you know who leads the church by your worship and by the music. And most of our churches, the music is determined by the lowest common denominator of our elders' wives. If they won't tolerate it, it won't happen. And I I can't get tired of talking about this. I'm so disappointed that we don't have the band leading us in worship at this conference. And they can't do it, and I understand that. But we are filled with a bunch of prigs and prisses in this church. A bunch of classical musicians. That's what a prig is, right, Andrew? Where are you? Andrew. Do you remember the first time I said that from the pulpit? And would you tell people how you felt about it when I said that? You weren't happy. And at that time, what were you doing? You were getting a doctorate in composition here at IU. And you were gay. You were gay. And I called you what? What did I call you? Calvin Klein. Look at the flip of his hair. So I always called him Calvin. <laughs> Now, why did I do that? Because I loved Andrew. And I did not want Andrew to leave this church and to be leading another Presbyterian church and to still be in love with his own sophistication. He would be a prig. The reason he didn't like me saying prig is he was a prig. Generally, if people get angry at you when you preach, it's because they need to hear what you said. And now Andrew and I could name another a number of men in here have given up their early music although I wouldn't say you were early music <laughs> but Jody where's Jody Yeah Jody you were early music right he studied at the Royal Conservatory over in the UK I mean all of us were a bunch of prigs all of us I okay and all of a sudden we realized that at on every level we were signing our cultural aspirations through worship instead of calling the sheep without a shepherd to come in. And then we realized that you should speak and sing in the vulgar tongue. And you think that I mean that instruments are vulgar. That's not what I mean. Vulgar tongue was what the Reformers said we should use in worship as opposed to Latin. And all it meant was what other people speak. You know, until recently, they thought that Koine Greek was ecclesiastical Greek. It was a special Greek that God ordained for his Bible to be written in. And then they found just a short time ago that Koine Greek actually was the vulgar tongue of the street corner. And that's what we have to do with music. Why? Because if you don't do it, if your goal is to make the women happy with your music, you will never have your wife, Michael, in your face saying you made an ass of yourself. And that's the high point of worship. Is when David forgot himself and danced with all his might, stripped down so he could dance better. And if there's one thing we as reformed people don't ever want to do, it's that. And so we're all Michael. I was talking to Jim Jordan about this. Ken Myers was there, and Ken Myers was doing his prig routine. He does it very well. There's probably nobody in the evangelical world who does it better than Ken Myers. That man is a consumer of everything that is eyebrow. And so I'm talking to Ken Meyer, and I'm trying to explain to him that maybe actually classical music is not the best genre for the church to worship in, because he'd just gotten done giving a lecture about how it is the only, right? And Jim Jordan is there. And, and I, I said to, I'll tell this story, because it's such an important story. So David Carell and I are over in Africa working in Rwanda, and we get done our work and they want to dedicate the building. So they've invited all the dignitaries in, in Kigali to come over and we're gonna dedicate and so it's gonna be a blowout party worship service and everything. And so they've hired the drummers from from Burundi to come over to Kigali and to drum. And these dudes show up. Now I'm sorry, but I'm gonna make some comments about race, but I have to. I hope you won't be offended. This is a white man talking about black men. Sorry. Okay, so. These dudes show up. And it is mind-boggling. Right, David? It is mind-boggling. Because they start drumming outside. And these drums are hollowed out tree trunks. And over the top of them is cow skins. And but the, the drumsticks are pieces of wood about that round and about 18 to 24 inches long. And they hit those drums with all their might. And it's just like being on the Boston Common on the 4th of July at the end of the 1812 Overture. When they set off 12 and 16 inch aerial bombs. And those aerial bombs echo off the skyscrapers and it's like having cystic fibrosis and having a respiratory therapist cup you. And that's exactly what it was, these drums. It was visceral. It was shaking my body. It was mind-boggling. And I tell you, I felt violated. And add to the problem, these men were stripped to the waist and they weren't white. They were black. And because they were black and in the sun and sweating, every single muscle on their body was perfectly defined. You could see it. And I just didn't like it. (laughs) And so I tried to have an out-of-body experience where I observed myself while being uncomfortable. And then it hit me. This is David and Michael. This is precisely David and Michael. And these men will lead me or i will be left behind do you understand this these men didn't want to know how i felt about it they didn't want to know how my <laughs> wife felt about it okay these men were manly and they were leading me with all their might and how many of them were there Probably 10 to 12 10 to 12 kaboom kaboom Every ounce of male sexuality is commanding us to join in the celebration and worship. Okay? Then we go in the building. And we proceed to dance with all our might. And I will admit I didn't do it. I weren't going to do it. But I did get to the point where I love the drums. And David's second favorite picture in his life is him with one of those drums on, on his head. And this wasn't, this wasn't a turkey drumstick. Listen, I keep telling you, I keep telling everybody I can, our worship has to change. Our worship has to change, and it has to be manly. It must be manly. And there are many ways of doing manly. You don't have to have amplified instruments. Some of the most manly worship I've ever been in is the CREC Presbytery, National Presbytery Meeting, where the, the, the sanctuary was filled with men who knew the hymns, and they just bellowed like cows. David and his, his elder Bob Forney, for years in their church, he used to get up front and sing hymns. And Bob's as masculine as they come, and David's more so. And those two men just got up in front of the congregation and they made asses of themselves, literally. And they did it with their arms around each other. And they just sang with all their might. If you don't change your worship, it doesn't matter how you preach. (laughs) Now, that's an exaggeration, okay, but all right. Okay, now I'll end. In other words, it may be a cappella... It may be instrumentation. It may be a piano with a man playing it who's 6'6". We had a man like that once, and, and he just hammered the lower register, and it was just as manly as our band today. That was Anthony Moore. But it has to be the language of the people, and it has to be the language of the lowest class in your congregation. Do you understand this? You must enfranchise the poor and the oppressed in your church. And the surest way of doing that is to make the music something that the elders' wives don't like. I'm serious. Every woman who has a husband is a wife. You know she's aspirational. He's an elder because she made him be. You know? Real men... Real men never become elders. (laughs) Okay, here we go. This is the last page. All right. What about Christian musicians? Are we different? You tell me. Are the male members of your band that lead you in worship each Lord's Day manly or effeminate? Are they hard or soft? Do they confess the sex God made them or are they androgynous? Do they lead with boldness and zeal and loud? or in weakness and a sort of cloying passivity. And what about the Christian musicians you like to listen to? Do they lead you to pursue the kingdom of God with holy violence? In past centuries, the church got it. Think of Handel's Messiah. Handel took scripture at face value and composed music that was biblical, celebrating the violence of God against his enemies. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. And listen, you don't like me singing, but listen, I just sounded a whole lot better than the time of Calvin. The time of Calvin, they couldn't sing parts. And they weren't even on tune. On pitch, I should say. Right, Jody? Beller. Give Glory to God. Handel simply wrote a musical setting for Psalm 2-2, followed by Psalm 2-9. The themes of judgment and God's wrath are found throughout the Psalms, which is the hymn book of Christ's church. And yet, when was the last time we sang the hymn, the themes of judgment and God's wrath in our worship services? In past centuries, the church had no problem singing these themes in worship. Here's Harvest Hymn from colonial times. Would you find it and play the last verse? please. Harvest him. Him is spelled... They're going to play the last verse, but let me read the verses before. Colonial times, the fields are all white, the harvest is near, the reapers all with their sharp sickles appear to reap down their wheat and gather in barns while wild plants of nature are left for to burn, to reap down their wheat and gather in barns while wild plants of nature are left for to burn. Come then, O my soul, and think on that day when all things in nature shall cease and decay. The trumpet shall sound, the angels appear, to reap down the earth, both the wheat and the tear. The trumpet shall sound, the angels appear, to reap down the earth, both the wheat and the tear. Come hither ye tribes, your sentence receive. No longer my spirit shall strive and be grieved. My judgment is right. My sentence is just. Come hither ye blessed, but depart all ye cursed. My judgment is right. My sentence is just. Come hither ye blessed, but depart all ye cursed. And then go ahead. Oh.
1: O sinners, take thought, and seek ye the Lord. I have not been jesting, it is Christ's own word. Let those who've done good in glory shall stand, while those who've done evil shall surely be damned. Let those who've done good in glory shall stand, while those who've done evil shall surely be So,
0: you all felt relieved when it went into the next one, right? (laughs) Imagine this hymn being one we look forward to singing each year at Thanksgiving. Why do we no longer sing in celebration of the judgment and wrath of God? As I said, our music tells us our doctrine. We sing soft songs because we're soft men who have soft doctrine. It's time to bring it to an end, so let me close with a few statements to get us thinking about the distinction between men who are manly and men who are effeminate. Hard men build civilizations. Soft men destroy them. Hard men build families. Soft men destroy them. Hard men preach. Soft men wonder and suggest. Hard men are zealous in worship. Soft men are passive. Hard men love discipline. Soft men hate it. Hard men love soft women. Soft men love hard women. Hard men raise sons and daughters. Soft men raise persons. Hard men are loud in worship. Soft men are loud in whining. Hard men are not, are in the kingdom of God, and soft men are not. Let's pray. Father, may we not be damned, and may we love your judgment, and may we embrace the suffering that comes from loving your judgment and proclaiming it, we pray. In Jesus' name.